Grab your Bible. You're going to need a Bible, and if you don't have one, there's one in the back that we'd love for you to use or have if you want to take that home with you. Um, And we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, chapter 8, and there's been some buzz. You know, we're in a reading plan this, uh, through this year, and I'm preaching out of the reading plan, and the entire reading plan this week was Nehemiah, and so people have been saying, what are you going to preach on out of this, this week's reading? Are you going to preach the genealogies, <laughs> you know, all the names, you're going to try to pronounce that? Nope. Nehemiah, chapter 8, it's the Bible conference of Nehemiah, and uh, to give you some history, maybe you're new, maybe you haven't been journeying with us, and and uh, just to give you where we are in the history and the context of Nehemiah chapter 8, Israel and Judah uh, split, the, king, the, the kingdom of, of, of uh, Israel split into two, and they went the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That was in 930 B.C. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered Israel. So one portion of of the kingdom. And Judah held out until about 586 when Babylon came in under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and he came and destroyed everything the temples, the walls, the city just destroyed it all, took all of the people of Judah into exile, and uh, Jerusalem was leveled. Well, then in 539 BC, the Persians came to power by taking out Babylon. And God made a way for his people to be able to return to Jerusalem, to the promised land. And the first Jews to return were under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. The temple was eventually rebuilt and finished in 520 to 515. Ezra and another wave of Jewish people returned to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the temple there. And then Nehemiah arrives 13 years later in about 445 B.C. He's a layman in the sense that he's not a professional clergy. He's not a priest or a scribe. He's a guy who's a cupbearer to the king. And he sees what's happening in Jerusalem, and he asks for special permission some paid time off to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that's what he does. And then the walls are finished. And the the walls are finished. They can begin to rebuild their city. And it has been 141 years since the walls stood. So it's been in rubbish for a long time, but now it's fixed. Uh, In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 through chapter 7 is about the restoration of physical walls. It's a story of prayer and unity and overcoming opposition. But then in chapter 8 through 13, it's a story of the restoration of worship. It records the restoring of spiritual life of the people, proclaiming the word in chapter 8, confessing sin in chapter 9, dedicating the walls in chapter 10 through 12, and making final reforms in chapter 13. So the first seven chapters, restoring the walls. The last few chapters, restoring worship. And so that's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And we're going to try something a little different today in uh, the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to ask if you would stand for the reading of God's word today. So Nehemiah 8, verse 1 through 12. Here we go. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of all the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood his friends. 
Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Jeshua and all his friends helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word and the richness that it provides for us, food for our souls. Revive us, God, today. Speak to us through your word. Give us understanding by your spirit. Guide my speech, Lord. Come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, Nehemiah teaches us about uh, revival. This week is a story of a revival that occurs in Jerusalem after the walls are completed. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word revival? Maybe that conjures up different ideas in all of our minds. Maybe you think about a scheduled service in the fall. Maybe you think about a tent revival. Maybe you think about a time where people act strange in church, okay, maybe whatever it is, we all kind of have different ideas of what we believe revival to be, um, but in Scripture, there are various revivals, and of which this is one, and it teaches us uh, about what revival looks like. The word revival itself could mean a physical reviving, like raising somebody from, um, from a sickness or death, like that we, we revived them. I died three times and they revived me every time. It could mean a physical, a physical reviving. But more often, it refers to the spiritually lethargic, apathetic, and bored, bringing them renewed love and joy and devotion to God. It's a reviving of our spirit, of our soul. I've heard it this way, that another way to think about revival is that it's the intensification of what God is always doing. The intensification of what God is always doing. He's always saving. He's always speaking. He's always healing. He's always calling. He's always confronting. He's always lifting, etc. But in revival... These things happen with greater intensity and to more people. What happens at revival is if, if you ever experienced a spiritual awakening and something, God did something in your life, in your heart, that has brought you to life spiritually, it's that happening at greater intensity in a group of people. Maybe in a church or in a community or in a nation. Here it's in the city of Jerusalem. The thing that's important to know about revival is that we can't schedule a revival. We can't schedule it in the sense that I think it's a little silly when we're going to have revival next week. Show up. We're going to have revival. Well, you can't really just put revival on the calendar. 
Because it's a supernatural act of God. It's been said, and maybe you've heard it said, that we can stack the wood, but only God can send the fire. Like we can prepare ourselves for God to move, but it takes God moving to spark true revival. And the wood that we stack to prepare for the fire includes the word and prayer and continued exaltation of Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, chapter 8, it highlights the central role of the word of God in revival. He's restoring the worship. He's reviving the people. And it starts with the word. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so today I want to see in this chapter how we can get on the road to revival. We can't conjure up revival, but we can, how do we get on the path to spiritual renewal? How do we place ourselves in a position where God will move and pour out himself on us? The road to revival. First thing is this. Read, read the word of God. Look at verse 1 with us again. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel Look at this. So they had a desire for the word. They, it says that the people said, bring in Ezra to teach us the law. Ezra didn't put together a, a church service. He didn't schedule a church service and send out um, uh, advertisement on Facebook to come to the worship service. The people so desired a hunger they had for the word of God that they said, we got to find us a Bible teacher. Do you know a Bible teacher? Well, I've heard Ezra's pretty good. Let's get him and have him teach us the Bible. That the desire for the word is a work of God in itself. And the first sign of spiritual renewal of true revival is a hunger for the word of God. And so that's what they do. They say, let's have a Bible conference. But how should we read or teach the word? Well, look, it says that they gathered as one man. They gathered in unity to study the Bible together, like we're doing today. We gather weekly in the unity of the body of Christ to study the Bible together. It says that they gathered at Watergate and this is uh, where uh, Richard Nixon grew up. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was, a, it was a gathering place. It was a large gathering place that accommodated a lot of people. If they would have gathered in one of the temple courts inside the temple complex, the temple was broken up into different spaces for different genders. So if you were children, you could get to one place. If you were women, you could get a little closer, and the men would get a little closer and they were all kind of segregated. But here they gather uh, at the water gate. It's this big gate with this large space for everyone to gather. And there's 50,000 people approximately. So everyone's here. Everyone's welcome. It says they ask Ezra to come teach. Ezra is <laughs> in different places. It calls him a scribe. In other verses, it calls him a priest. And in other verses, it calls him a scribe and a priest. That's what he is. A scribe is someone who would have hand-copied the Scriptures. How well do you think you know the Scriptures after you've hand-copied them word for word? So a scribe, he, it means that he loved the Word of God, and he knew it well. A priest was someone who ministered to the Lord, and so he, as a scribe, he loved the Word, and as a priest, he loved the Lord. He loved the God of the Word, and so he was qualified and capable to teach the Word to the people. And it says that it's the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. So they see that this book here is not just simply written by Moses, 
They understand this is the law that the Lord commanded. This is a divine book. It's special among all other writings. It stands alone. It has a special ability in the life of the believer. So verse 2 says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. He says that, so, so it seems like the word here is inclusive. It's for everybody. He says it's for men gathered, women gathered, and all who had understanding. So it's children. I think it's also fascinating that the, the gathering here is age appropriate. The teaching is age appropriate. He didn't say everybody's at this gathering. He said, and all who had understanding indicating all young people, children, who had the understanding to be in the gathering and to receive the teaching. And this is one reason why we believe in, to have environments where children can learn about Jesus on their level of understanding. Now, our, uh, we have incredible children's spaces in different classrooms and different uh, teachings going on right now. They're teaching your kids the Bible, but... In our main gathering here, all are welcome. All are welcome. Uh, men, women, uh, children are welcome. If you believe that they can understand what's going on in here, but it seems like there is an emphasis here on the importance of them being able to understand. That what's more of a priority is that they receive in a way that they can understand. And so that's why we create environments here where, where kids can learn about Jesus on their level, but they're always welcome in here if you as their parent believe they can understand what's going on here. So I just love how it's inclusive. Everybody's here. Verse 3, And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Am I a little loud? Am I too loud? Can we turn me down a scotch? That's a very specific audio term, a scotch. If we could turn me down a scotch because I'm feeling a little reserved at the, at the intensity of the audio. But verse 3 says, And he read from it facing the square. Um, they, they gave the word their attention. Look at that. That, that the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now it says, from morning until midday, he read the law. Morning literally means from daylight. So from daylight until noon, they're teaching the Bible, reading the Bible. That's approximately around six hours of Bible teaching. It's, he most likely... It did not teach all of the law, the law, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what he's probably teaching here, but he's not necessarily teaching it exhaustively because you couldn't teach it all in six hours. Now, this teaching does spill over into a couple of days, so he might be uh, grabbing some of the most relevant portions of the law to what they need in this moment, but he's teaching it most likely verse by verse going through helping them understand. And um, what I find fascinating, this, this around six hours of Bible reading with some teaching involved, it says that they were attentive. The ears of all the people were attentive. For you to be attentive, hearing the word of God read for six hours, that takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That takes a spiritual awakening. They were hungry for it. They were devoted to it. Many of them haven't heard any teaching like this before. Many for the first time are hearing the words of God read to them from the scrolls. They weren't distracted or disinterested in the pastor world and the preacher world, we talk about length of sermon and making sure things are interesting and that you keep people's attention because after about 30 minutes, you're not guaranteed anything with people. 
you get into past 30, 40 minutes or 50 minutes like you guys are used to. I read this, I think, man, I think they could go for a couple of hours, probably. Let's try it today. Y'all want to try it today? Six hours, we could do it. But look, that's what we wrestle with, is trying to get people to pay attention to God's word for 30 minutes. But here they had such an attention to the word of God. They weren't distracted. What hinders our active listening to the word of God? Here's some things. Anger. You have anger in your heart, that'll hinder your ability to pay attention to the Word of God. Unbelief, just don't believe it. I'm not buying it. That'll, that'll hinder your ability to listen to it. Distracted hearts, that's probably where a lot of us are. We're distracted by the cares and the worries of life, the desire for other things. Maybe it's hard hearts. Maybe you're not teachable. You've got a chip on your shoulder. Your life is about other things. You have no value for the Word. You fight to resist the Word of God in your life. There are some things that keep us from paying attention to the Word of God. But here they're like, nope, we're making this a priority. We're giving it our attention. We want to know this. We want to hear from God. Verse 4 says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood his friends. Now, you thought I was going to read all those names? You knew I was not going to. But um, I'll apologize to them in heaven. Tell them to get some easier names like Bob, okay? And, and Bill and Jay, okay? Let's get some easier names here. But what I find fascinating here is that they built a platform for Ezra to stand on. Okay, so they built him a stage. Now you wonder, I think some people, they're like, well, we shouldn't, uh, you know, we're so, um, I don't know, uh, we, we elevate the preacher so much, we have put him up on a stage, and it shouldn't be so, we shouldn't. Like, stages were built to serve the people. Even back here, how, how, why do we have a stage so everybody can see clearly? To serve the people. To serve the gathering. Anytime you get in a gathering, if one person's going to talk to the whole gathering, they'll stand up on something to be able to address everybody. And that's what happens. But I think it's important to note that the, the stage is not built to elevate the messenger. It's to elevate the message. The, the stage was built so that everyone could see him open the word and hear the word proclaimed. People need to see the Word of God, not my opinions. I'm not here to just get up and tell you a bunch of stories of things that happened this week and made me feel spiritual. And maybe they'll help you and inspire you. No. Paul tells Timothy to preach the Word in season and out of season. Get up and help people see the book. Help them see the Word and understand the Word and elevate the Word in the eyes of the people. So they elevate them so that they can all see and hear and receive. They did practical things so God's Word would have its greatest effect. There's practical, practical things that we can also do to help God's Word have the greatest effect. Like we come in and we, we want to make sure the room is comfortable and so in the July heat, we have the air conditioners on ahead of time. We try to decrease distractions. The preacher uh, is clearly heard, stands so everyone can see. Audio is amplified so everybody can hear. These things help the Word of God have its greatest effect. But by far, the greatest preparation that can happen is the preparation of the heart. We must come willing to forget about ourselves and our own agendas and submit ourselves to the Word of God, not the preacher's Word, but God's Word. And so the greatest preparation we can do so that the Word of God will have its full effect is, is come with a prepared heart. 
Maybe you're reading ahead through the reading plan so that you're familiar with what's going on. Maybe Sunday morning you're getting up and you're praying that God would speak to you and that you would have the right mind and he'd give you understanding. And so you're coming in with a heart that is prepared for the word of God to have its fullest and greatest effect. Let me ask you, what are some practical things that you can do so that the word of God can have its maximum effect on your life? Maybe maybe there's some things like Reading a physical Bible. I'm not not against electronics. Maybe some of you think I am. But what I am against is you having notifications while you're reading the scriptures. And so whenever you're on your phone and you're trying to spend time with the Lord and get something from God and then bing, and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about that text or I see that email, I'm starting to respond to something and all of a sudden I'm drawn away, my attention is drawn away from the word of God and it doesn't have its full effect because I'm filled with distractions. So maybe it's, I'm going to grab a physical Bible. Get it giant print if you need to. And and I'm going to spend some time just with it. I'm going to put my phone in the other room. Go distraction-free. Maybe it's read in a place that's free of distractions. If you sit at your kitchen counter, and uh, your kitchen bar or whatever, and you, like, looking at the sink full of dishes is distracting to you because now you're thinking about washing the dishes and you can't, I mean, once I just wash the dishes, then I'll be focused. And it's like, no, just go get into a room where you're not thinking about any distractions. Maybe just get in a closet if you have to. Then you're thinking about laundry and you're like, oh no. But get in a place free of distractions. Maybe you can take notes to help you think through what God is saying to you. Maybe it's your studying with others. What are some practical things that we can do to elevate God's word to have its fullest effect in my life? I mean, one great way to extract the truth of the text is to ask questions. Here's some questions, some classic questions that you ask when you read the scripture. You read a passage and maybe you're asking, is there a promise to claim here? Is there a promise I need to hold on to? Is there an attitude to change Is there a command to obey in this passage? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a sin to confess? Just some practical questions to ask to help you get the most out of your Bible reading. To hear from God. Look, so they do things, take practical steps to elevate the word, to see it as... Special And verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. This standing, as we did, we don't, we, we don't normally do that. Maybe we'll make it a habit. I don't know. But um, that was what they did. You can imagine. I mean, he didn't have a Bible like this. He didn't have a book in this sense, the bound book. It's most likely a scroll. And so he goes and he grabs the scroll and he sets it on the podium and he opens it up. And as soon as he cracks that scroll open, everybody stands. It was instinctive. It was a, a, a reverence for the word, an honor for the word of God. Can you imagine if every, every time I, I came up, hey, church, how you doing? Boom, everybody was like stood up. Because we respect the word so much. I've had people who, who, um, who they don't like you setting anything on the Bible, right? You put a notebook on the Bible, you put, you put something on top, they're like, hey, move that off. You shouldn't put anything on, on the Bible. And sometimes you think that's a little wild. Or maybe it could be a reverence for the scriptures. And so that's what they're doing. They stand. This is not a command. We're not commanded every time the word is read that you must stand. This is uh, not prescriptive as much as it's descriptive. But it helps us see their attitude towards the word. They're honoring the word. Okay, so point one on the road to revival is read the word. Be taught the word of God. And point two is this. Respond to the word. How did they respond? Look at verse six. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So at the reading of the word, their response is worship. 
And that should be our primary response when the word of God is taught, worship. Now, um, their worship was expressive. It says that they blessed the Lord, um, that they lifted their hands, that they bowed their heads, that they said, amen, amen. It's expressive. Notice they blessed the Lord. John Piper says about this, that in the scriptures, when God blesses men, they are thereby helped and strengthened and made better off than they were before. But when men bless God, He's not helped or strengthened or made better off. Rather, and he quotes C.A. Keller, that, a, that man's blessing God is an expression of praising thankfulness. When the Old Testament speaks of blessing God, it does not designate a process that aims at the increase of God's strength. It is an exclamation of gratitude and admiration. So whenever we bless the Lord, because that's kind of we, we're not quite used to that. Well, let's bless the Lord. And so we think, okay, if the Lord blesses us, He's doing something for us. And so if we bless the Lord, then that, we must be doing something for God. How do we bless? Blessing the Lord is at no means, by no means increasing anything about who He is. It's by no means helping Him. It's a way of expressing gratitude and thankfulness and praise to God, ministering to the Lord, blessing the Lord. It's exalting God for His greatness. Psalm 104.1 says, Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Last uh, fall, fall 2022, we did a series called uh, Jesus Follower, and we talked about these five G's in the life of a believer. And um, one of the G's was the gathering. And in that sermon on the gathered, gathering of the saints, we pulled out that the primary purpose for the gathering is blessing the Lord. That's the primary purpose, is blessing the Lord, ministering to the Lord. Secondary purpose would be building up of the saints, building up of the body, equipping the saints for work of ministry. First, Bless the Lord. Now, do we come with that attitude? Do we come to church with the attitude of, I'm going to bless, I'm going to minister, I'm going to praise the Lord? What can I do for the Lord today? It's the priority of the gathering. It's the priority of their gathering. I love how the people participated. It wasn't just Ezra blessing the Lord. The people said, amen, amen. You wonder where we get it from. Some of you in a sermon, y'all say, amen. That's right. And here it is, right here. Ezra starts, Ezra starts preaching. They're like, amen, amen. It is true. Bless the Lord. I agree. They're participating in the worship. They're expressing themselves. How should we worship? Verse 6, he says, they lifted their hands. They lifted their hands. Again, you wonder, hey, you come to church here, and you're like, there's people around lifting their hands. That's Weird, I came from a church where we didn't do that. Why are they lifting their hands? Because the Bible, the Bible says it. The Bible uh, tells us to. We lift our hands. Um, Psalm 134.2 says, Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise. Lifting your hands to bless the Lord. And then in 1 Timothy 2, in the New Testament, verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Lift your hands, all you peoples, and bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. That's why we do it. Blessing the Lord, you've maybe heard it said that it's a sign of surrender. I think that's true. You know, people say, whenever the cops pull you over and you're getting arrested now and you're committing a crime and they, they put your hands up, right? And because with your hands up you can't really do anything. It's a sign of surrender and I'm giving up. And, and so people say, say it that way. 
think you can always also think of it as if you were to hand something to someone above you or receive something from someone above you, you would have to lift your hands to, to grab onto it. And so it's also a sign, a lot of times, that the, the Jewish people, as they would pray, they would lift their hands, palms upward, and uh, as a sign of receiving from the Lord. So it was, maybe it was a surrender thing. Maybe it was a, I'm going to receive from the Lord something in this time, or I'm going to give the Lord gratitude and praise in this time. Either way, it's an expression of worship. But also, their expression continues and says, they bowed uh, their heads, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Face to the ground. Man, that is a, that is a, like if you were to put your face to the ground like this, this is an act of humility. Can you imagine doing that before someone? If you did that, it's an act of total surrender. Total submission. Here I am before you, do whatever you wish to do. This was what servants in the Old Testament, what servants would do before their masters. They would bow with their face to the ground. It's a way of saying, I am, I am totally yours. Tell me whatever you want me to do. Whatever you want me to do. Have you ever been moved to worship God in this way? And maybe it's not in a gathering like they're doing publicly. Have you ever been moved privately to worship God in this way? To get on your face before God? Why is it that churches, contemporary churches, they adopt the standing for reading scriptures? There's a lot of churches that do the stand for the honor of the reading of the word of God. How come they don't also adopt the bowing your face to the ground to worship God? I don't know. You might say, um, don't other religions do that? Like, isn't that kind of like, that's like a Muslim thing or, or a Hindu thing. And, and right, Muslims do still practice this religiously. And so, yes, you're right. There are false religions who have people who are more devoted to worshiping their false God than many of us are to worshiping the one true living God, the Savior of our souls, the transformation maker in our life. And I, I don't know about, about you, but I get convicted every time I see uh, portrayals of Muslims multiple times a day stopping, laying out a mat, bowing towards the east. And I think, man, they're more devoted to their false God than I am into the true and living God. I don't daily get on my face before God. Maybe I should. There's something that happens whenever you position your body in the appropriate posture that your soul should be in. We are, we are whole beings, and there's something about the posture of our body that communicates something to our spirit and to the Lord. Maybe we should get on our face more often. Um, if you've never done this, maybe you need to see more of the greatness of God. Most of these expressions that we're talking about, blessing the Lord and, and lifting of hands and bowing of face, these are mostly associated with worship through music. But they are doing this in response to preaching. As they are hearing and understanding the word of God, they see the greatness of God in such a way that they are moved to worship, the, worship God with expressive worship. Bless the Lord. Amen. Amen. Left. Thank you, Lord. Give me more. Bowing in worship and adoration, surrender. God, have your way with me. Speak to me today, God. Greater understanding leads to greater worship. 
greater understanding of the word of God leads to greater worship of the God of the word. Look at verse 7. It says, also Yeshua and the rest of the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, meaning that they gave the intent, the meaning of the, of the passage, so that the people understood the reading. And so um, Ezra would read the word, and these other guys who were on the stage with him, the other Levites who are on the stage with him, um, are most likely people he can tag in when he gets exhausted. He's reading for six hours here. And so maybe he needs to take a break and get a, a glass of water. And so he tags one of the other teachers in and they come in and continue the teaching. But in addition to the people who are on the stage, it, there also seems to be this other group of people who are in the crowd who go into maybe a smaller setting to help people understand what is being read there's heavy emphasis in this chapter over and over. It's repeated understanding, understanding, understanding. There's an emphasis on understanding the word of God. They would explain it. This is expository. They're exposing what's in the word so people can understand it. One of the ways that we respond to God is by seeking understanding with others. So it seems like there's this large teaching from the stage and then there's a smaller conversation that's happening in the crowd. And um, I think that in, in our context, that would maybe relate to how we have set up small groups that we have, we gather weekly as a large group to hear a word proclaimed from the stage and then we gather throughout the week in smaller groups to better work through the teaching. It allows you a space to ask questions about what was said. It allows you a space to work through how to apply what was said to your life. I would love to see more and more sermon-based small groups. Not because y'all need to be uh, talking about things that I said, as much as it seems like a biblical model for us to better flesh out in smaller groups, how to apply the things that were said in the large group. And so that's what's happening. So they're learning deeper with others and getting better understanding. And maybe you need, if you're, if you're not in a small group, you're missing out, y'all. If you're not in a small group, you're missing out. You're missing out on great relationship and fellowship, but you're missing out on better understanding of the Word of God. Um, and so get in a small group or start a small group. There's the idea of the air war. It might be, you might understand uh, from war tactics, the air war, the planes and all of that, and the ground war, the soldiers on foot. And these would be um, the air war being the preaching, the proclamation. Uh, this is the idea of media being sent out, books, Christian books. Um, it, it covers a lot of ground. It's the air war. And then the ground war would be like small groups and counseling and classes to help better understand. We need both. We need both. And some people put an emphasis on one or the other. I think we should all be in homes. I think so too. After the large gathering. <laughs> After a large gathering. We need both. The goal of Bible teaching and preaching is clarity and understanding for better worship and joy. Maybe Darren should lead us in a song after the service today. Um, but number three is this. Um, on the road to revival, repent and rejoice in the word. Repent and rejoice. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Why did they mourn? Um, because the sermon had gone too long. They were held captive. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. Um, it's because the word brings conviction. 
The word brings conviction. They were confronted with their sin. If you continue reading this chapter and the next, you'll see that a lot of the things they were hearing, they were confronted. Oh my goodness, we're not doing any of this stuff. We're falling short. We're not being obedient. And so they're confronted with their sin, which leads to grieving and mourning. It's one of the effects of the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training in righteousness. That one of the roles of the Scriptures is to correct us and convict us and reprove us. For us, those who are a part of the community of faith in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in us, and one of the Spirit's roles is to convict us. And when we realize, as we're reading the Scriptures, if we realize that we have sinned and have not lived up to God's desire for us and His commands, we have the opportunity to repent of our sin. This was Jesus' continual invitation to people to repent and believe. It's actually his first words in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. This was a theme of Jesus' ministry, an invitation to repent and believe the Gospel. Now, repent, repentance is not just feeling bad for your sin, that you sin. It's not just a sorrow over your sin. Repentance is changing our mind towards sin, which leads to change in behavior. Repentance can be viewed by some as a negative event, yet it is the beautiful process of renewing our faithfulness to God and experiencing spiritual renewal. And so one of the marks of true revival is transformed lives. It's not just people leaving a service being high on the experience for a couple of days. It is, is your life changed? Is your attitude towards your sin changed? Is your behavior changed as a result of the work of God in your heart? So we must repent. But he, then he says, this day, quit mourning, he says. For this day is holy to the Lord. Holy being separate and devoted to the Lord. Um, verse 2, as we've already read, says that this is the first day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23-24 lets us know that on that day, it is the, um, what's called the, the, the Festival of Trumpets. At the Festival of Trumpets, um, they would, the, the priests would, blow trumpets to kind of symbolize or call to people's attention that this is a special month. This was the greatest month of festivals in uh, the Jewish calendar. The post-exilic um, uh, Judaism, they would separate this as, so post the exile, they would separate this as Rosh Hashanah, which is their new year. So the first day of the seventh month, they would blow trumpets, symbolizing this is a new year, and this is the beginning of a month where they celebrate some significant things, like Sukkot, and you'll see that later in, the, in chapter 8. We're not going to get into it, but Sukkot, which is the, the Feast of Booths, where they would set up booths in the town or maybe in their backyard or on their, their rooftop, and they'd set up booths and they'd live in them for a week to remember that God brought them through the wilderness and that their ancestors lived in booths for 40 years looking up at the sky and the stars, and they would remember God's deliverance. But more importantly than that, kind of the, the pinnacle of all their holidays was this, this, this celebration called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was the Day of Atonement. And it was the one day a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It's a place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the manifest presence of God dwelled on earth for a period of time. And he would go in there and he would offer sacrifice for the sins of the nation once a year. And the Levites are saying, look, quit mourning. This is a holiday. This is a day of celebration. 
that the word not only brings conviction, but the word brings comfort. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So he's like, celebrate. Celebrate. Someone once said, our knowledge of sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. We are great sinners, but he is a greater Savior. And it seems like what's happening is that there's some people who they're convicted by the word and they process that and they repent and they move into the joy of their salvation. And there's other people who like to live in wallowing in their sinfulness. And they are grieved, but they want to stay there. And all they can focus on is, I'm such a filthy sinner. I'm such a sinner. God, I don't deserve anything. And they just stay there. And it seems like the teachers are going, that's good that you're convicted of your sin, but don't stay there. Yeah, we're great sinners, but we have a great Savior. And so celebrate the joy of your salvation. He says, eat the fat. This is what I like to tell my wife when we're eating steaks. Just eat the fat. It's good. It's good. It's good for you. Sorry. Sorry, babe. <laughs> There's a lot of people who don't eat the fat. But here he says, eat the fat. He's saying, he's saying, don't count the calories. Get the bluebell out. It's a celebration. He's not saying all the time. He's not saying eat the fat all the time. He says, but this is a holiday. This is a special occasion. This is an occasion for celebration. So don't be weighing things out on Thanksgiving. The, the gifts of God, I think is what he's saying. The gifts of God, here he's talking about food and drink, should be enjoyed to the glory of God and to the worship of God. There are times special time, all the time we should uh, do all things for the glory of God, but there are special times throughout the year where we feast to the glory of God. God, man, you made such good food. You made our bodies able to taste the beauty of these foods. They're delicious and enjoyable, and we give you glory for that, and we thank you for that. You're so cool. The way you designed this is incredible. And so we Enjoy the gifts of God to the glory of God. And we share with those in need. Back to verse 10, he says, Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing. So we are to share with those who need, those who didn't prepare anything or those who don't, can't afford to prepare anything. It's similar to on Christmas. Maybe you'll invite someone over who doesn't have the means or maybe the family to celebrate the holiday. And so you might invite them over for Christmas dinner and include them in your celebration. At Thanksgiving here, we, we send uh, entire Thanksgiving meals to people in our community who don't have the means to, to purchase and prepare all of those things because this is a day of celebration. And we, we need to share with those who are in need. And so... Um, whenever you're celebrating, look for those around you who don't have the means to celebrate and share with them. But the salvation of God is, in, is inclusive. It's not just for the wealthy or the well-to-do. It's for everyone. But he ends in verse, in verse 10 where he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that, is, that is a well-known verse, isn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is a promise to grab onto. What's interesting is that the English word translated in our Bibles, strength, is the Hebrew word that appears 34 times in the Old Testament, and it means mountain, stronghold, place of refuge, or fortress. The joy of the Lord is your fortress, your refuge. Now, now what does he mean by the joy of the Lord? Is he talking about the joy that the Lord has for us? Is he talking about the joy that the Lord feels for us by, although we are great sinners and we have, we're messy and messed up, that he joys in uh, saving us? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about our joy in the Lord who has saved us? Joy being a supernatural delight in the person of God, the 
purposes of God, the people of God. It's a supernatural delight in God. Is that what he's talking about? That my joy in God is what is my fortress. I don't know. I'll let you decide. But either way, I do find it fascinating that they had just finished building walls to create a refuge for their city. And now he's saying, you need a refuge for your soul. And that is the joy of the Lord. Renew your strength and joy in the Lord. Verse 11, so Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way, eating and drinking, to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's fascinating. The law makes us aware of our problem, sin, and we weep. But then the gospel brings us the solution, Jesus, and we rejoice. That understanding the word produces joy. I think in this passage we can clearly see that the input of the word of God is foundational to our spiritual revitalization. But not everyone feels that way. This week I read this old letter, a century old, um, to... Uh, a British newspaper that was published in a British newspaper, and it was written by an anonymous person, and, and this is what it says. Dear Sir, uh, I notice that ministers seem to set aside a great deal of importance um, on their sermons and spend a great deal of time in preparing them. Now, I have been attending services regularly for the last 30 years, and, and during that time, if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitable spent on something else. Yours sincerely, Anonymous. Well, that letter triggered an avalanche of responses for weeks, and eventually a single letter closed the debate. The response said this, Dear Sir, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,000 meals, mostly of my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I have discovered that I cannot remember a single menu of a single meal. And yet, I have received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. Yours sincerely. What he's saying here is like, hey, the point is not that you'd remember all the points, even though they're alliterated for your memory. That's not the point. The point is not that you'd remember everything. It's that you'd receive the nourishment that comes from the word of God being proclaimed being taught. And yes, a preacher can spend his time doing other things, but it seems like the central priority in the life of the church is the proclaimed word of God being taught to the people because it nourishes our souls. The word of God is indispensable to reviving and renewing and nourishing your soul. Are you on the road to revival? Maybe this week you pray that God would give you a hunger for his word. You know, I'm always open to God sparking revival at any moment, any time. We're going to surrender to that when it happens. But maybe God wants to spark a personal revival in your heart. And so God, just pray, God, would you give me a hunger for your word? But then don't just be like, all right, I'll start reading whenever I get hungry for the word. No, just I'm going to read and ask for an increased hunger. Maybe you respond to it in expressive worship. Repent of the sin that it exposes and rejoice in the God of our salvation. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your kindness towards us by preserving your word to us, Lord, that we can know the God of the word. We don't don't worship the word, Lord, but the word uh, reveals to us how we can worship the God of the word. And Father, I just love that 
As the word was proclaimed, they were sparked to worship you. So I pray, Lord, that you would revive our hearts. You'd revive our souls. That you'd spark fresh fresh spiritual renewal in our lives. And that it would begin with giving us a hunger for your word this week, Lord. Father, I pray that there be people who today as they see Jesus who saves us through his death on a cross, that they would turn, repent of sin and embrace Jesus for the forgiveness of sin so that they can rejoice in the God of their salvation. Spirit of the living God, speak to us as we leave. In Jesus' name, church said, amen.